Hello and welcome to episode number four of Confessions from the Witness Box, where we're joined this time by Jeremy Glover, partner at Fennec Elliott's. So firstly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, so welcome to our fourth podcast. Now, I know from uh, looking on Fennet Edits that you're absolutely no stranger to webinars and production of these kind of things. You seem to have a very prolific output of um, webinars and uh, commentary and guidance yourself. Yes, I mean, when, when lockdown happened almost a year ago now, difficult, difficult to believe, um, we were looking for sort of ways that we could sort of carry on and sort of reach um, clients and, and, and the people we work with. And webinars seem like an obvious, uh, obvious way forward. And we just sort of took the plunge as quickly as we could, and had a few disasters. Um, the first, first, first webinar we did, I think we had at least two parcels delivered um, during the currency of the webinar, and sort of been interrupted by sort of pets and what have you. Um, but it was a good way for us to keep in touch with people. Well, I think the webinars are a really nice way to actually get very easy access to information and the expertise from the law firms and from yourselves. Um, because I know that you also edit um, the Fennec Elliott's Dispatch um, Bulletin, which is extremely detailed and useful. But there are times when it's a lot easier in, a, in our slightly lazy and modern world to watch a to watch a webinar or a podcast than it always is to, uh, to, 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 to read the bulletins. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because we, we, we have these discussions and there's sort of, um, are people more likely to listen to a half hour webinar or a 20 minute podcast than to spend five, 10 minutes reading two pieces of A4 paper, which are the dispatches? I mean, I mean it's frightening. We, I mean, I started dispatch over 20 years ago now. Um, and the idea was always two pieces of paper go across someone's desk or, you know, it'll only take you, you can read it um, while you're having your coffee. And that's exactly the same now as it was when we started. But but you're right. People do talk about, well, are people actually going to read that? There are actually a lot of people. It's easier for them um, to listen to something as they're going about doing doing other things. Um, so it's interesting. You try try and produce things that work for different people. And you can't be too set up on what works for you must work for everyone else because life's not like that. No, absolutely not. But but do you think there has been a tendency that you know you, you um, now publicise the dispatch through your um, Twitter account, and of course Twitter is now almost limited to where we were with text messages ten years ago, where you got two hundred fifty six characters. Do, do, do you think there's a tendency that people are trying to distill uh, some very complicated and detailed information down into effectively sound bites? There's definitely people that do that. Um, I'm not sure it works so well in the legal uh, contractual world um, because you get the little headline and there's usually and what matters is actually what lies beneath the headline. Um, there are some uh, media where I think you know that the, the idea of sort of distilling things into the into that short message works very well. I think from a legal contractual point of view, you can only use Twitter and it's the equivalent. It's like a signpost. Um, this is what we're going to talk about, and then, but you need a little bit more detail. So Twitter's there. Um, it's good. It can be fun. Um, sometimes it can be far from fun, and you have to sort of have to be careful and sort of watch um, what what what's happening. But it, it's there as signposts, I think. Yeah. Um, particularly from sort of the, the world that um, I, I I live in. 
Yes. And of course, at the absolute other antipathy from um, Twitter and, and the two-page dispatch bulletins, <clears throat> you're also the author of an extremely extensive guide on understanding the FIDIC Red Book and Yellow Books. I'm always slightly um, in awe when um, working professionals manage to produce such extensive uh, reference material because the time commitment required to try and produce that kind of body of information um, must be fairly extensive. Yes, it is. I mean, I mean, it, it, it is an extensive undertaking. I, of course, was lucky enough to be sharing the authorship with Simon Hughes QC at Keating Chambers, so it wasn't just me. Um, we shouldered the burden together. But, yeah, it's commitment. Um, I mean, confession time, I mean, I, I quite like doing it. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Well, if you don't like doing it, there's no point doing it. Um, but it also helps me in my day job because a lot of the work I do is on international projects or projects where the FIDIC, FIDIC contract is used. Um, by writing the book, you have to think more clearly about the clauses of the contract. It helps you understand the contract. It helps you understand some of the issues that people are likely to be facing when operating the contract. So I, I think it helps helps me understand the help certainly helped me understand the the contract better um if you you know you're talking about sort of confessions from the um witness box i suppose the one difficulty of writing a book and the one difficulty of having sort of papers and stuff on a website is that one of the first things that the opposition always does oh i wonder what x has said in writing and you know i mean i've been in hearings where people have sort of very loudly plonked the the FIDIC book on the desk in front of them and you sit there wondering what they're going to actually say in relation to um, what you've written um, so far touch wood and this isn't an invitation to people to sort of um, come out at, after me um, you know I mean I, I stand by everything that that has been written um, but it's the same the same is true for experts I mean obviously one of the first things that um, a, a lawyer will do when they see when they instruct someone or when they see someone on the other side, we want to know what you've been up to. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and there's always that concern. There's always that worry that papers, articles, uh, or as we are now, podcasts and um, webinars that have been published previously, they, they don't go away. And there's always a danger that something you say there, you have to be confident in what you've said. Otherwise, it's going to be hung around your neck later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Or be prepared to say well i said that it was five years ago things have moved on things have changed i mean and also to be fair it's pretty rare that you do find someone who is sort of comprehensively um caught out and they're actually sort of maintaining a completely opposite position to something that they've, they, they 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 have written i mean i think in our experience it's happened once um we during it was just during adjudication we just sort of found someone on the website had written an article which was maintaining completely the opposite position to they were maintaining in the adjudication and there you were. They, I mean, they just simply said, "Well, that was 18 months ago. We've changed our mind. We should have said so on a website." And then, and then they just move on. And the adjudicator still has to um, consider the, the decision on the basis of the arguments put forward at the time, not what someone said 18 months ago. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, just very briefly, we'll come back onto kind of your current professional um, career and arbitration and adjudication shortly. But as we have done. With all our previous episodes, I think we'll probably go back slightly earlier in your career uh, and how you came to become 
um, a partner in in construction law, and you went to university at the University of York, and you studied history. I understand. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I've always found it very unfair at the University of York that uh, the university owns or has access to the Council of the North or what used to be the Council of the North. And they put the archaeological department in this amazing King's Manor building and the history department, which was slightly more involved with the history of that period, rather than having the access to um, King's Manor, are stuck on campus in a rather grotty 1960s concrete, um, uninspiring building. Um, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I did have dealings with the archaeology department. They've also got, I, I think it was the either the archaeology or the history department. They've also got a right, though they did have a really nice house um, in the sort of centre um, centre of York. Um, one of the things that I did as part of the history degree was learning how to um, uh, decipher or read 15th, 16th century um, English script. It was all part of a, of, a, of a dissertation, which obviously becomes very handy for reading people's handwriting later in life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, but the York's, everyone thinks of York that it's a, an old university, but as you say, it's a, it's a 1960s university. Um, the thing that I always thought was particularly unfair was that just before I joined, they used to hold gigs. They've got a big artificial lake and they had the sort of the big, the big place you could have gigs was in the middle Central of Hall. the lake. Central Hall, yeah. But apparently, uh, the story I heard was that Bob Geldorf encouraged everyone to stand on the seats and dance. And that had an impact on the stability of Central Hall and gigs when were no longer allowed in there in the, at the university. So that was, that was my main gripe. But the history department's great and the archaeology department was great. Um, I actually, I mean, my link to construction is through archaeology. There's a lot of partners and, and, and people who work at Fenwick Elliott who are working in the construction industry, um, electricians, architects, quantity surveyors. Um, I used to be an archaeologist. Um, so okay. I sort of spent, you know, um, the contractor's enemy, the, the people yes. you find. Literally, um, we are working on a rescue dig in Colchester, which is where I'm from, um, which is Britain's oldest recorded um, Roman town, as it says on the um, the train station. Um, but it's true. Um, uh, there, there was a, a, it's one of the places that were raided by um, Bodicea. Um, but so we were literally working in the town centre and we were down a level digging and the builders were actually up a level waiting for us to finish, desperately hoping that we didn't find anything too interesting um, that would delay the construction of the what's now the Culver Street um, shopping centre. So, I, and the question is, did you find anything? Uh, not there. I mean, we did find stuff. I mean, we, 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 we found loads of interesting stuff, sort of mainly Roman. I mean, it's not very interesting to look at, but one of the key things that you need to do when you're sort of uh, doing archaeology, because you actually you destroy things because you, you dig everything up as you go down, and you need to be able to date information. And there in Colchester, there's a layer of clay, red clay, I think it's about that thick. And that is, I think it's 79 AD, because that's when Bodicea, um burnt, burnt the town. So you know when you've got to that level. So just to overutilize Latin uh, for a second, and and, and to overutilize, um, so it's not Latin, it's actually it's Victorian England, uh, to, to overutilize archaeology, um, I've always felt that whenever you're doing um, 
a, a disruption case and a disruption claim, actually thinking back to the idea of a palimpsest and thinking back to those archaeological ideas where each new layer impacts and wipes out clean the layer below can be so important when trying to discuss disruption and how each new disruptive event kind of has an impact of obscuring the one below it, uh, which is... Uh, Sorry, just a, a rather aside and a point of trying to link no, archaeology it, into... It, it's right. I mean, it's absolutely right. I mean, and what you actually want, whether you're doing disruption or, I suppose, planning and recording the archaeology, you want there to be a clean break. And quite often with archaeology and you've got the layers, there is a clean, because you, you, you can watch, you, you, I suppose it's like digging going with a borehole. Um, yes. You, you've got the layers and you can watch it up. And disruption, unfortunately, um, is rarely that simple and straightforward. <laughs> unfortunately so, absolutely. Um, so after York, you moved into archaeology, spent spent your time with a trowel digging. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then how did you move from archaeology into, into law? Um, well, so I've got a history degree. And you, what, what do you want to do? Well, didn't have any fixed plans. Um, thought, well, maybe the law sounds quite interesting. Um, then I was lucky enough to spend two years in Nottingham, uh, sort of Trent Polly, able to forest, uh, follow Nottingham Forest and Brian Clough. Um, and then sort of came down to London and worked at a law firm uh, which did insurance professional indemnity work. And what they did was a a lot of work with architects so got the opportunity to go around lots of interesting buildings and understand how the building process works it's got some similarities with the archaeology process but it's basically in reverse you, you you see the plans and you see the buildings being built up with archaeology you go down and you take things up you still do the planning side of it and it's what i was interested in um then i was lucky enough some time ago now, well over 20 years, to get an opportunity to work at Fenwick Elliott, and that's what they specialise in. Um, and here I am. So in addition to Fenwick Elliott, and, and we'll come back onto um, Phoenix in a second, but in, in addition to Fenwick Elliott, um, outside of that, I note that you have been since, or was, were between 2009 and 2017, um, a trustee on the Construction and Development Partnership. Yeah, CODEP, um, a charity that's still operating out in Sierra Leone. Um, uh, I think the, the, the currently sort of trustees, sort of, um, uh, Sebastian Wood, Mark, Mark Whitby. Um, yes, um, Claire Curtis Thomas, who used to be one of the Liverpool MPs, um, some time ago went out to a place called Waterloo, in Sierra Leone. She lived in Waterloo up in Liverpool and she has some connections with the construction industry and she went and asked them and said, look, I've got these engineers this, um, and what would you like us to build for you? And they were expecting, I don't know, maybe a, a bridge, a dam or, or, or something. And they said, well, actually, um, we'd like a library. Um, Sierra Leone before the troubles was known as sort of the, one of the, 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 the most the key places for education in West Africa and because of the troubles in Sierra Leone they'd sort of lost the generation and they realised that education was incredibly important and so they wanted to build a library um, I was brought in to provide some construction legal knowledge about construction projects which I was able to to some degree to to help with and that was interesting just was very interesting actually being on the other side of the foot you're not you're being a, a client and so whereas previously you know as a, a solicitor you advise people and sometimes they don't 
they take what you consider to be slightly odd decisions and then acting as the client you can see that the dips yeah, helps you understand better the pressures that you see you've got the lawyer me saying we'll do this and then i put my other hat on as the client and you see that actually that isn't necessarily the right thing to do um but yeah so from an education point of view so there we were construction uh, sort of, uh, engineers people with construction experience suddenly becoming involved heavily in education and so we built a library and we set up a network of uh not teachers but people who would go out into the sm- the schools around offering support offering books and and, and what we also did was the local schools, the smallest children, um, four, five-year-olds, they would come in for regular lessons um, to help them learn to read. And the idea was that the library would become a sort of a community centre, um, which became incredibly important when they had the Ebola outbreak um, four or five years ago now, um, as it became a centre for storage of food and also a centre for, again, a different type of education, which was sort of spreading the message of how to avoid Ebola. So, so there you become involved, you know, you asked to do something because you know a little bit about construction contracts um, and it turned out what I actually needed to know about and had to learn about very quickly um, was sort of literary type things and then actually helping to assist in a sort of a disaster um, area so it's absolutely fascinating but I mean it all it all succeeds because down to the um, the people who are actually on, on the ground in Sierra Leone I mean we're, we're over here you know we, we just assist to some degree what matters is the, the incredible hard work that's done by the people actually work, the local people in, in Sierra Leone. Um, so, in addition to your to your involvement involvement in um, with, with CODEP, you're also listed on uh, well, virtually every website actually, including Authentic Idiots and then um, most of the other ones, as been a very keen runner. Yes. Now, again, through through the freedoms of the internet, some amazing photographs from your recent runs through through, through London or, or, of kind of London turning into autumn um, and that side, and, and some fairly um, uh, some very quick times. Um, again, when it comes to we discussed earlier on writing a book, and, and now when it comes to, to running, uh, it, I'm always very envious of people manage to find a balance between the commitments and, and the extensive time commitments that you find with arbitration and litigation and adjudication, and be able to actually still maintain some kind of normality of life. <laughs> well, I think you, you have to. Um, for me, running is is just sort of i mean i know it's good for you from a sort of healthy from a health health point of view unless you get injured um but it's also a mental thing i mean it gives you an opportunity to um do something completely different to get a complete break i know there are some people that listen to podcasts um like this one for example when when they are running um that's not me because um would want more of a, a complete break i mean i'm lucky enough to live in greenwich and what i used to do was um watch the the, the london marathon and then for three or four weeks, I'd be, yep, I really want to do that. And then after three or four years, actually, I do really want to do this. And then I started running um, and I realized, actually, I quite like this. And then separately, I realized, oh, I think this is quite good for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you have to be, you know, you, you can't try not to make it take over your life. But I mean, for me, it's quite an important thing because it's a way of it's an escape. It's a way of sort of getting away from doing things. So, so, sort of so have you run the marathon then yet? Yeah, I've run. I've been lucky enough. I've run the London Marathon and I've run a, a marathon in Berlin. Um, I've also run a half marathon in Sierra Leone. Um, wow. 
um, which was pretty good. There, there's another charity called Street Child that run um, marathon, half marathons out in Sierra Leone. Well, they haven't obviously the last two or three years, but that's sort of um, um, as, as, a, as, a, as a means of raising money. So, yeah, I've done that. And um, I was down to run the marathon in Paris in spring of last year and then obviously got postponed. And and, um, and how do you find the Berlin Marathon? Because that's meant to be like one of the flattest marathons in Europe and at a very quick time. Yeah, I mean, I was quicker in Berlin than, than I was in in London, I'm not that quick. Um, I, I was running the course at the same time as the as the Wilson Kipitea who um, um, set the world record. I think it, I think it was him. So that was that's only, I was in a world record race. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he could. I think he could have run it twice um, in the time that um, I took. But there, but there we go. Yeah, it was good. I mean, and it, I mean, it, one of the things about the London Marathon is all the people that come out. And one of the other things about London Marathon is you go around and sort of on corners, you have different bands. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, London had a steel band. It might have choirs, whatever. And the same idea in Berlin, there's lots of people out there. Um, but one of the memories I remember from, from Berlin, you went around the corner and you suddenly got blazing techno coming from, <laughs> from, a, from, a, from a tower block, which felt very Berlin and not kind of thing you necessarily um, see in London. But yeah, it, it's good. It's, it's an occasion. It, it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's a nice thing to do. And you, you've trained you, oh, the Berlin sort of was was training with a group of friends we know we'll that's how i go into strava we're just sort of sharing times and stuff on, on the strava thing um just to sort of you know so so we actually knew you were working working towards it together and also um last year i think clinic edits were meant to have been running a charity uh race of their own round um was it battersea park it was meant to have been yeah it was battersea park yeah we were going to do that april may it was an aid of the the lighthouse charity sort of um very sort of um dear to hearts many people in the construction construction industry and what we did in the end we we didn't do the run but we did like a virtual a virtual run uh well a vir- you had i mean it's meant to be 5k so you had to do five things you could run 5k um someone did 50 keepy ups um people were doing 50 press ups or whatever it was it just became like a, a firm we opened it up and with sort of some of our friends and colleagues and sort of people we work with um joined in but it's also it was, it was a really good firm thing we, we've got a sort of I mean, we, it was, you know, it was at the height of the lockdown, and I reckon about half, half, half the firm were there, sort of posting pictures of what they've been doing. So it was a good way of keeping in touch with everyone, and sort of um, like a, like a, a, a firm-wide thing. So I think one of the difficulties of the sort of current lockdown thing is it's very easy to sort of you, how, how do you keep the, the the community of the firm that you're working with? Normally, you go into an office and you see colleagues day and day here you know there are people that you might not see um that regularly so it's quite it's quite important that we we, we try and think of things sort of keep people together and sort of um so so so, so moving back then on to um uh, arbitration uh, which is kind of meant to be the purpose of these podcasts um you've been involved in some absolutely amazing international cases uh, some extremely large ones ranging between um, oil and gas in in turkey through to large ME projects and i note that within your list of recent projects uh you also have one in the caribbean did you get to have the hearing in the caribbean or was it somewhere less glamorous uh the hearing was in the irdc in london oh no from our <laughs> office um no, I mean, obviously, we did suggest that it might be helpful if we went on a site visit um, on a couple of occasions. Um, it, it's tricky. I mean, in, in reality, site visits, I always think, are a useful thing. Yes. Uh, they're very useful in helping people understand exactly what some of the issues are. 
Um, and I, I, I appreciate, obviously, at the moment, site visits are almost impossible. And then you, you, and you can do it virtually. I mean, we, we've seen um, excellent use of drones, drone footage and stuff um, recently on, on, on projects which helps you understand. But yeah, the Caribbean one, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been nice, um, but um, wasn't wasn't appropriate in, in all the circumstances. Um, and also what you do find um, is people like coming to London. Yes. Um, uh, there are lots of reasons why people are actually quite keen to come to London for hearings. Um, um, we'll have to see how, how it works out, what, what, how hearings um, work out in the future. I mean, people obviously having hearings when they're sort of the virtu- the vir- vir- virtually, sorry, people having hearings virtually um, at the moment um, have to be interesting to see the extent to which that continues um, once we ever sort of get out of the cycle that we're in at the moment. Well, but in terms of um, the virtual hearings, uh, uh, as you say, it'd be interesting to see how much it continues and how it develops i think it's very much everyone's been thrown into its infancy and there's interesting new questions being raised um, i think you raise it was even your latest dispatch or it was in the current law update from fennec edits the fact that there was the question that taking a screenshot of a, uh, a yeah. hearing is a um it's effectively a breach of um the hearing um the court so there's a lot of new challenges i think people have to actually try and address in in the use of virtual hearings yeah i mean there's been a huge number you're right i mean there, there, there was a case this year when i think one of the masters sort of commented in a judgment that um yeah you, you're taking a screenshot that is contrary to um the the, the, the legislation and there have been a whole series of cases over the last nine months about things going a little bit wrong yes. um a judge being overheard because she didn't shut down the the laptop properly um two people being overheard by a judge discussing something that, which, which actually gave rise to them having done something they shouldn't have done um there's all, all, all these things happening but i think the more the, the more i mean that's just things that'll get ironed out um it's more for decision makers how actually running the hearing and um from i suppose from a experts point of view um yeah i mean i, I think we we were lucky enough to have um we were lucky enough to have a, a judge i farrell from the tcc i was on one of our webinars um and she was saying that when it came to cross-examination particularly of experts she's actually still pre- would prefer the idea of sort of more face-to-face yeah. um, rather, than, rather than virtually when you've got hearings where people are just putting forward the law and the people aren't being cross-examined whether they're witnesses or experts um she could see no reason why that shouldn't um carry on virtually so for example um adjudication enforcement hearings no reason why they can't almost forever continue um in a virtual front because there's obviously savings in uh time and cost and also it's easier for clients to attend yes because you know there's me joking that the idrc is five ten minutes down the road if i've got a client who's two hours out of london to come down for an hour two hour adjudication enforcement hearing that's a full day mm-hmm. um whereas virtually they, they they can just they can just log on but it's interesting that the, the judge was saying when it came to um cross-examination particularly of experts she would rather at the moment her, her, her gut feel was to sort of just it's better um you understand more from a face-to-face um, yeah. operation yeah. I think from a point of view of experts, there is a situation whereby the live hearings have now become so uh, 
there's so many years of history to build on that they've now run extremely smoothly between having your live transcripts and the ability to actually go back and see the question and actually make sure you're answering the right question put to you the ability of having exhibits placed before you and actually the 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 procedural element of giving evidence to an expert in a live hearing is extremely smooth it's designed to make sure that the barrister has the best opportunity to cross-examine but the expert has the best opportunity to actually present their expert opinion and i think when we now move to um the virtual hearings, the the ICC seem to be using a, uh, a system based on Zoom. It looks very much like Zoom, but it's badged as the ICC. Um, and it, it's not quite as slick yet in terms of having access to um, exhibits, bundles, transcripts. It's, it's catching up, but it doesn't seem to be quite the same smooth experience and there was also a study last year i can't remember who published it but there was a study last year which suggested that where for a factual witness where the internet connection wasn't as stable um and they weren't as clear that the factual witnesses were less um persuasive than the same factual witness on a stable um internet connection so i think there's items to be resolved but it definitely seems to present a, a sensible move forward for for some of the hearings and a, a distinct reduction in costs for the parties so, yeah ab- absolutely no I'm, I'm sure that's right and as you say i mean as people move forward it becomes it's, it's organized better people people learn from what's gone gone wrong learn from yeah. what's gone right and can make the whole process um, that much more smooth that much more easy but 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 there is also an element though which um, on the larger cases and, and putting aside that period, that blissful period when you're in Perda. So put, putting that to one side, for, for the rest of it, I think there's definitely benefit to having your team sat next to each other, the ability to pass post-it notes when they're not rude, um, the ability to actually confer afterwards and, and to have the breakout rooms. There's a real benefit for the legal team, I think, from from having that interaction with people. I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, we've had hearings over the last 10 11 months the one that worked best was when as a legal team um we literally put all the rooms the office rooms in fenicalia and made them one room so we could be appropriately spaced out um but that was actually better than us being in four different houses um yeah. spread around spread around london because there was it was there was that interaction could be quicker um, you know, I mean, you can do it. You, you do it through WhatsApp messages or other, other, you know, I mean, other other criteria. So you are actually sort of dealing with the messaging people at the same time. Um, that's how you do it. And it, it works. And as you say, the more you do these things, the better at it you get. Yeah. But I think there are always going to be occasions where you'd actually do need to sort of be together. I mean, another interesting thing from an expert point of view, and it's not something I've seen, it's something you sort of, you, we've talked about, um, is the idea of hot tubbing and how that isn't going to be quite so successful, perhaps, um, from a virtual point of view, because part of the thing about hot tubbing is that you've actually got them quite close together. Um, and if you've got two people on two screens, it's a, it's a completely different um, way, way of doing things. Yes, absolutely. And, and of course, hot tubbing is one of these ones that, we all love uh, not, um, but but is a, is a kind of a modern day necessary evil, um, and I think it does definitely yield good results for the tribunal because the tribunal particularly being able to present their questions and to drill down 
on, on the items they want to but with the two experts next to each other um i, I think there is definitely real benefit to it so yeah I, I think the virtual hearing environment will pose challenges for that for that element of it uh there are still experts still coming across it for all the first time um i think for some experts they don't like it very much um, it's, it's, it's and they sort of struggle with it, um, and, and and to some degree it comes down to personalities a little bit. You've you've got the people who are sort of trying to be sort of domineering and dominating, um, and it's sort of and people feel that they're the ones that do best at the um, hot tubbing process. It's not actually right because provided you've got a tribunal or a judge um, who's well informed and knows what they want to know, what knows what they want to find out, um, is asking the right questions, then it's the person who has the best understanding, the best knowledge, who's done the best research, is the person who's always going to push through, even if it's not at the start of the process. But you can see that some people are a bit nervous of the process because they think this is because of personalities. Um, but it's not ultimately, it's not actually out about, like all these things, it's not about personalities. It's about what you actually have to say. Um, I, I, I think a nervous thing. Uh, speaking personally rather than for all experts but I think personally one of the nervous items of a hot tub is the same concerns that I would I have with the opening presentations at the point at which you're asked to stand up and present and then you have the hot tub at the end there are two there's two points in the process where there's a very fine line to be walked between presenting your opinion and advancing your client's case and the second that you're put into a slightly adversarial environment of a hot tub where a question is presented to both experts, it's very easy to unintentionally um, step over that line and stop presenting a uh, an opinion, an impartial opinion, and to start advocating a position. And of course, we're not there to have a position. We don't hold positions. We're there to present opinion and, and to assist the tribunal. And I think... A nervousness is, or definitely a personal nervousness, is trying to make sure that it's an opinion being presented rather than a position being advanced. Yeah, I I, I understand that, um, and I suppose the way around that it's it's your opinion being presented because it's an opinion being based being presented on the basis of the information that you think supports that opinion, and you and you get a feeling that you're stepping over when the information to support what you're saying isn't there to as high a degree that you feel comfortable with. And that can be part of the process. I mean, an expert pushes themselves a little bit too far and then you start seeing the potential flaws or difficulties with the case that they're actually advancing. At, at, at one level, it sounds very, very, very convincing. Um, and then when they're asked to justify it in a slightly different way, which is one of the purposes of the of the hot tub, it, ca- it can introduce some of the flaws or potential flaws in the argument. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So just to quickly uh, to r- round off, uh, going back on to... Uh, your professional profile, you have a uh, quite a broad spectrum between uh, adjudications, uh, large arbitrations and litigation. Um, from an expert point of view, I think most of us always prefer arbitration. We have time to prepare properly. We have the security blanket of it being um, non-public and being private. And we all tend to least um, 
love the idea of getting into adjudication where you have seven days to rush for a report. You know there's going to be holes in it and you rarely get a chance to properly present it. And you and the person for the other side may not be an expert, but just there as a claims consultant. But from a legal point of view and a client point of view, uh, what's your preferred means of dispute resolution? Ha, um, million dollar question. Um it probably changes over time. And the very unhelpful answer is, it, is that it depends on the facts of the particular case, um, which I know always sounds like a lawyer's cop-out, um, but I think genuinely it does. Um, the one thing I always think in favour of adjudication is that I also sit as an adjudicator, and that has been a huge benefit to me, partly through enabling me to understand the process better and to understand better how you should be presenting information to a, an, an adjudicator or an arbitrator or tribunal. So it's, so therefore it's, it's as easy to understand as possible. Um, and also because adjudicators make decisions. Um, lawyers don't. Uh, we, 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 you know, I mean, we, we, we advise and we say this is what we think the answer. These are what your options are. As an adjudicator, you, you make a decision. And the first time when I was an adjudicator, I know it was a fairly straightforward decision that I was making. But it's still like, oh, I've actually got to decide what it is. So I think that's been a huge benefit to me um, personally, just sort of from a, sort of from a legal c- contractual point of view. Um, I think the best forms of district resolution is the ones that try to avoid um, adverse processes. Um, so, I mean, I'm a member of the um, DRBF. Um, so the idea, the concept of a, of a dispute board um, on, on the bigger projects where you've got people there who, who are there to try and promote dispute avoidance. Um, whether it's just the fact that parties don't want to refer anything to a third party, they want to sort things out themselves, well, that's a good thing. Or whether it is as someone there who can actually um, help to advise the parties um, or even make sort of formal decisions. So I, I feel I'm not really answering your question. Um, I quite like a slightly longer adjudication process. 28 days, I think, can be very, very short for some of the reasons yeah. that you've said. Some disputes, 28 days is absolutely fine. But I think, you know, a slight, so possibly slightly longer, a longer adjudication process. I mean, the FIDIC contract's got an 84-day um, dispute adjudication board process. So, so maybe something along those lines. But ideally, you don't want to be in that type of process anyway. You want to be looking for ways that you can help your client avoid even adjudication or the dispute adjudication process and look for some kind of dispute avoidance to actually, I mean, that's got to be the best way. And that can be good and interesting from even from a legal point of view, because you're looking for alternative ways to achieve that. Um, Alternative dispute resolution, ADR, isn't just about mediation. It can be encouraging people to pick up the telephone to actually talk to people. Because I think one of the most important things, particularly when we we started off this discussion talking about the ways in which the electronic internet era is changing things, one of the ways it's changing things, and I always worry about slightly, is that people don't communicate with each other. Um, they just sort of send each other messages. And by communication, I actually mean have conversations with them and, and speak to them. And I think if you're speaking with people, maintaining a dialogue, that helps to encourage um, a process where you're looking for ways to resolve issues that arise among between you without going to some of these formal dispute resolution routes. Yeah. Um 
I think that's a particularly excellent note upon which to um, conclude our discussion. So thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, It has been a pleasure talking and discussing these items with you and um, thank you very much. No, no, thank you very much indeed. No, I've enjoyed it. It's It's been interesting, so thank you very much. 